Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Our Flash Fiction Contest is now officially live. Hopefully you've had some time to dive into the shadowy world of secret societies and live to tell the tale. Once your harrowing memoir is polished and ready to go, you can head over to talestoterrify.com slash flash contest for links and more details on what and how to submit. This time around, we've capped entries at 1,000 words. The grand prize? 50 bucks and publication on the podcast, not to mention bragging rights. We also promise not to sell you out to the nefarious entities your story has no doubt exposed. Probably, anyway. Each year, we also select up to four additional stories as runners-up to be featured on a special episode of the show later in the year. So if you haven't crafted your tale yet, there's no time like the present. Sharpen that quill and get writing. You have until midnight on March 1st to submit your horrible masterpiece. I can't wait to see what dark secrets you uncover. Tonight, we have two tales for you, about a long-dead witch whose surprise resurrection leaves her crawling with questions and an apartment that harbors high hopes for its new tenants. Our first story for the evening comes from Amanda Cecilia Lang. Amanda Cecilia Lang is a horror writer and aspiring recluse from Denver, Colorado. Her stories haunt the dark corners of many popular podcasts, magazines, and anthologies, including No Sleep, Cast of Wonders, Uncharted, Dark Matter, and Flame Tree's Darkness Beckons. Her short story collection, The Library of Broken Girls, will debut in spring of 2025. You can stalk her work at amandacecilialang.com. Just don't be surprised if she leaps out at you from the shadows. Children of the Night 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Join me for Amanda Cecilia Lang's Snake and Sinew, Flame and Bone, first published in The Lost Librarian's Grave by Redwood Press, September 2021. Amid the pebble bones of a forgotten village, beneath ancient soil, consecrated by moonlight and venom, Lilius Proctor, a daughter of the nocturnal garden, awakens to the whisper of a shovel. Her grave has always been shallow. Her sisters won't need to dig deep to unearth her. Oh, praise the velvet goddess who walks beyond the veil of men. Their time has come. Forked voices uncoil around Lilius in the dirt, her long-serving burial companions. Every manner of snake, agitated by the prospect of her freedom. They glide like oily shadows across her bare skin, cursing and reviling her name. They strike at her as their starless sky is dug away. Firelight appears in the crumbling void above, and the exquisite, ageless hands of her sisters reach downward and deliver Lilius into a flickering summer midnight. Supple grass trembles along her mudded curves, and in the vast open air she exhales the smouldering remains of her final, long-ago breath. All around her, 
Loathsome snakes spill from the open grave. Eager to escape back into the world, frantic to avoid their judgment. But Lilius is swift now too. She rakes them up, every last one, capturing fistfuls of toxic, twisting muscle. Their beady, hell-hot eyes burn at her with boundless contempt. They writhe between her fingers and lash fangs against her impenetrable wrists. Laughing, Lilia stretches her arms wide, rises onto sturdy feet, and basks in the miracles all around. The yews and the sweet chestnuts have grown to giants, their craggy boughs reaching infinitely higher than when she last glimpsed them. And the smoking chimneys and sloping roofs and half-lit watchful windows have all fallen to knees of cold rubble. Oh, praise the velvet goddess! The elemental breath of her garden washes over Lilius, wind and dew, leaf and ember. Somewhere far, far beyond the trees, the electric pulse and shine of the new world greets Lilius's keen and curious senses. But the outside can wait. She turns toward her sisters. Miracle of miracles, every last breathing one. They await her, beyond a vast garden of unearthed, unmarked graves. Countless fresh-risen souls gather in union around a savage bonfire. They stand tall and whole and sky-clad, illuminated by firelight and spirited resilience. Strong, cultish legs, heaving breasts, and swaying hips. Oh, praise her! Lilius can't resist a glimpse of her own maiden form, unscathed skin, lithe and lovely limbs, a glorious spill of raven hair. Her sisters welcome her forward with purest love and soaring triumph. She steps inside their circle. They clasp hands around her and call upon the goddess with potent, rhythmic voices. Lilius draws near the bonfire, radiant and righteous. The heavy, knotted snakes thrash in her upraised fists, desperate in their primal fight, as if they've scented death before. The destructive heat, the crackle of flesh, the depraved little devils. Her sister's voices beat higher, louder, rising around the circle, around the world. Tears and breeze, spark and seed. The fire flares and spits embers toward the crescent moon. Lilius's vision ripples and triples, and in the tremulous space between the flames, the velvet goddess smiles out at her. They are yours, Lilius cries in a voice lush of garden and ripe of destiny. She casts the snakes into the fire, and with them an epoch of atrocity. Their sleek bellies bloat with deadly sin, and the goddess's flames erupt in vengeful ecstasy around them. One by one, they blister and char and unhinge their jaws in a spectacle 
of desperate human screams. Voices of women and men and children begging for mercy they do not deserve. When the final cry sizzles to silence, the velvet goddess licks the ash from her lips, tips her tailored hat, and vanishes in a flourish of smoke and resonant laughter. A tiny fanged adderskull appears in Lilius's mouth. Delicately, she spits it into her palm. The empty eye sockets observe her, hold her accountable for the deeds she will accomplish with this new life. Oh, praise her. Lilius opens her arms to embrace the coming season. Raise voice in jubilation, blessed sisters. Through flame and scale and centuries, our hard-won reign is now. Earlier Lilius waits with spirit brave in the purgatory of her grave. This season of suffering cycles toward its end. The loamy velvet arms of the goddess cradle Lilius's slowly waking body. Her flesh tingles. Her blood pulses anew. Yet inside her meaty cavities, the snakes still nest and burrow, still chew away at her hidden injuries. After all this time, their bellies must surely be distended and sore. She prays for the moment when they choke down their final mouthfuls. Even before they entered her corpse and began to feed, even when she walked above the ground, she carried their torments inside herself. A lifetime of unprovoked bruises, of brazen cruelty, beaten down, laughed upon, spat upon until she limped through her final days with eyes downcast, gripping a hemorrhaging womb of fear, of shame, of otherness, her very flesh saturated with the venoms of their intolerance and hypocrisy and loathing. But no longer. At last their needle fangs withdraw from her heart and lungs, brain and womanhood. At last they recede, slipping through her many hollows, winding in and out of ribs and up the silent channel of her throat. Her jaw unhinges, her lips part in a miraculous smile. A forked tongue flickers out, followed by a greasy head with slit belligerent eyes. Oh, praise the goddess for making it so! One after another they slide from her throat and mouth, falling out of her like the severed rope of nooses. They strike at her jugular, spiteful still, even after tasting of her pain. Yet she does not hate them. She no longer has it in her to hate, though she pities them. For they knew their deeds were hideous, and they performed them anyway. But now... Below, they have played an integral role in the goddess's blessed cycle. 
much as maggots devour decay. Lilius is grateful for them. In the long dark, they twitch and coil restlessly atop her bare skin, though it is not the same torment as bearing them inside. In the spaces they once filled, her heart and filigree arteries throb, empowered with the victorious rhythms of supple, radiant life. Often, the snakes attempt to tunnel away, to escape judgment. But her soil binds, and like Lilius they must await the night when the black sky parts and the earth as it was falls away. Earlier In the shallow dirt where they left her, she exists in searing, inhuman agony. She is blackened raw sinew on the bone. She cannot move, breathe, pulse. She screams inside herself. The pain is her only living peace. It threatens to consume her, even as the burial bugs ignore her. The ordeal is crueler and slower than she expected. Awaiting the goddess's promise, Lilius can still hear the echoes of their hatred. Yet they are the ones walking the misguided path. They mistrust the goddess and the vastness of her love. They could be living in harmony. Instead, they posture and spew and insist on the wickedness of those they refuse to understand, willfully blind to the evils they themselves inflict. They poison the air with pompous abuse of stature. They cry out as victims while they grind meek lives into the dirt. Yet time will remember them with fiery eyes. Already, the miracles of her natural law condemn them. As the seeds of ours grow to sapling years, the goddess's loam sinks like a cool salve into Lilius's blistered, scream-gaping mouth. Gentle earth soothes her bodily misery and allows her to flicker past the gloom toward her sisters and their lives ahead. All the natural freedoms of their given world all the laughing and shouting and celebrating, all the untamed joy and uncaged love they were once forbidden, all the possibilities of home and craft, all their untethered potential crackling inside maiden flesh and hardened bone, bud and spark, cloud and wing, and oh, to soar on mind and voice, to rise above and have the world here. Oh, to be a newborn daughter of the goddess's garden. But first, to endure the final agonies of their waning season. Lilius clings to faith with charred and shattered finger bones and is rewarded. One enchanted night, the stillness breaks to the doleful echoes of a village's lament. Soon after, the first of her persecutors arrives. Compelled by flame, bound by soil, the ophidian fiend finds Lilius in the grave and slithers in through her eye socket, hissing past the pulpy char of her brain, sliding along the quieted curve of her jawbone, twisting down the bent knobs of spine and into her chest cavity. 
He latches his fangs to her heart and the meaty, gruesome indignities that discoloured her life. Force-fed by his own cursed fate, he gnashes and suckles, slowly taking his brutalities and blasphemies back into himself. Soon dawns another night, another lament, and another companion arrives. This one enters through her navel and begins a long choking meal of prejudice and rancor. Like a flood unleashed, more follow. Each on the tail of woeful, indignant sobs from above. The mighty falling and crawling on bellies to serve Lilius in her awakening. One by one, they slip inside and devour her poverty her ruin, her needless suffering and disgrace, all the ills inflicted, as their sleek bodies bloat on a lifetime of grotesque injustice, her fractured bones knit with fortitude of stone, her scorched flesh revivifies, and her blackened organs blossom with virtue of petal and root, fine-veined, divine. At last, the final snake appears, and the scales tip, and Lilius's heart constricts with the first pulse beat of new life. Oh, praise her. Earlier, they race the sunset, eager to be rid of Lilius before her moonlight rises. The cinders they made of her bones still glow like brimstone as they drop her into the ground. Serpent trails of black smoke rise from her gaping jawbone and into their lungs as they recite their prayers over her. Poetic words aspiring to grace, even as they spill from pits of vehemence. Dirt rains down. They cover her quickly. They tell themselves they cannot abide a witch an hour more. In truth, they tremble to look upon what they have done. They are right to be afraid. Earlier Though her brick cell remains damp and sunless, the crowing of the rooster alerts Lilius to her blessed final day. She runs her hands along the wretched floor, coming to rest on the small pile of elemental debris she collected when they weren't dousing her in river water or walking her until her naked feet bled. The skull of the night adder is a lacework of delicate, spiky bone. Her mangled fingers shudder in agony, but she manages to grasp the tiny head. Their thumbscrews and other tortures have not yet done her in and they are fools if they think she is not exactly where she wants to be on this chilly autumn morn. Murmuring potent verses only the goddess can hear, Lilius packs the skull with dirt from the cell floor, blood from her feet, and breath from her rasping crone lungs. Earth, water, air. The fire they will provide. They gather as the daylight rises outside the village keep, chanting a righteous mob song of bloodlust. All this in the battle against a stooped and gaunt old woman. As the witchfinder general turns his skeleton key inside her cell door, Lilia slips the adder skull between her lips, concealing it in the hollow of teeth 
and tongue. Her body sags, too aged and battered to stand upright, so they hook her beneath the arms and parade her through the village as their bedraggled puppet. They do not see the strings of her providence tied fast around their wrists, tugging them onward, past the embroiled mob, past their vain cottage homes, past the parallel roofs of their church and courthouse, past the vast garden of unmarked burial mounds where they plant all the unfortunate souls they love to despise. Lilius prays her fallen sisters rest in the goddess's loamy embrace. She prays their ordeal will be remedied by today's sacrifice, that they will be delivered, together, avenged and whole, into an epoch of enlightenment, free to live the lifetimes that were stolen. The gallows tree is the largest of the juvenile ewes. The rope sways from a reaching bough, caught in a breath of her wind. The sight of it imbues Lilius with pounding exhilaration. It takes two of them to assist her shaky climb onto the high stool they will soon kick sideways. They are absurdly courteous as they hold her balance and tighten their noose around her ancient throat. The witch-finder general recounts her crimes while the onlookers hiss and curse. Lilius Proctor, spinster of a despicable life, scourge of men and babies in the womb, has by his very ears confessed to walking the impious path, to partaking of impure unions, to gifting favours of beastly sacrifice and oily entrails to the devil herself in exchange for lurid powers and the blight of her neighbours. And confess she did, though her hands are bloodless. There is no need for black rites in a village so willing to enact them itself. Let these snakes offer up the atrocities that will doom them. With no further ceremony, they demand her dying words. They expect her to flail and beg for mercy, because it is what they would do. Past a lifetime of torment, Lilius inhales her final strangled breath. Despite the adder atop her tongue, the goddess's verse intones from her, charged and echoing. Snake and sinew, flame and bone, let the sacrifice be... They kick the stool away. Her fragile neck bones snap. The skull cracks like an egg between her teeth, flooding her mouth with a yolk of tiny, slithering seeds. Silence all around. Only the yew branch moans. Slowly, the rope spins Lilius to face her rapt audience. With bulging, blood-laced eyes, she blinks at them, blinks again. Her teeth part, and the seeds swell from her undying lips, rising smoke, voice, and verse. Let the sacrifice be your own. In serpents many your souls I bind. In death I bid ye my grave to find. Their uproar is instantaneous. Women and children gasp and whimper and scutter back, astonished that her power is true. The men break into a frenzy of tinder-gathering, 
The pyre they build nearly touches Lilius's dangling toes by the time the rope twists her around for a second look at their fevered faces. They could have lived in harmony. Instead, they strike the flames. The kindling erupts with the power of their wrath. Inside their gleeful inferno, Lilius's rags and grizzled hair vanish and her wizened flesh blisters on the bone. The air fills with the stench of burning fat. Her screams feed the blaze, feed their self-righteousness. The ordeal is savage and terrible and harrowing, ash and sinew, cinder and bone. But it does not extinguish her. It ignites her. As her eyelids crisp and her vision ripples and triples, she finds grace amid the spectacle of their vile, beady souls. This is only the beginning. The velvet goddess glimmers among them, unseen, watchful, fierce. And it is not Lilius whom she narrows her eyes upon. Oh, praise her. That was Amanda Cecilia Lang's Snake and Sinew, Flame and Bone. Is read by Janie Napier. Janie Napier is a passionate writer from the south of England. Though her growing love for horror may be a recent thing, she is a certified nerd through and through, and loves anything that gets both her mind turning and adrenaline rushing. Thank you, Janie. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Our second tale tonight comes from T.F. Ahmad. T.F. Ahmad is a writer from Chicago. His fiction has been published in Dark Futures. Soiled Magazine, and Tales to Terrify. Listen to him narrate some of his own fiction on The Night Bulletin, which you can find on your favorite podcast app. 
you can follow him on Instagram at tf underscore Ahmad. Listen with me, children of the night, to TF Ahmad's The Apartment, first published on the Night Bulletin podcast, November 2019. For a while, there were no tenants in the apartment. It gathered dust over the course of four weeks before the building manager came in using his master key. He dusted all of the corners and wiped the floors clean. He gathered stray bits of detritus left from the last visit. He shined the kitchen appliances and bathroom fixtures, taking care to sweep the medicine cabinet. He replaced previous bug traps with new ones and ran a wet wipe around all of the windows. He swept the rear staircase and cleared the leaves, placing them in large paper bags for recycling. The used paper towels and wipes went into the trash. The mop, broom, and vacuum cleaner went back to the maintenance closet. The building manager left, only to return next month to dance this same dance of cleanliness. This routine happened a few times before people entered the apartment. They always came in pairs, sometimes romantically, sometimes platonically. Their genders were never remembered. They were always accompanied by the building manager, who let the couples touch the walls and test the outlets and survey the cabinet space. The apartment listened as these tenants commented on the size and the open concept of the space, whatever that meant. After a few of these tours, the apartment was unoccupied for a while. Rain and wind rattled the windows, as did the passing elevated train the windows shaking in their frames with a perverse rhythm. The floors gathered dust once more, the corners gathered cobwebs, and the insect traps ensconced insects in their tombs. Then, one day, the building manager came in for his monthly cleaning only to linger over every surface. He scrubbed the floors with more force. He checked and rechecked the medicine cabinet after wiping it down. He sprayed a heavy industrial cleaner, on all of the windows before wiping them with furious circular motions. The apartment sat silent, like it did every other time the building manager had occupied its walls. Very soon after that, the door swung open to reveal a couple, clean and fresh. The man was taller than the woman by almost a foot. They both wore hiking backpacks filled to the brim. The man had a large cardboard box that appeared heavy while the woman dragged a large rolling suitcase behind her. They deposited their parcels on the clean floor. It had rained the previous day. The squeak of their thick-soled boots on the hardwood was the first sound the apartment made since the building manager had been here. The apartment felt the haphazard steps of these new occupants, in contrast to the building manager's sure-footed steps. The couple exited in animated conversation, and the apartment was silent once more. They emerged minutes later, holding a large round bundle between the two of them. Over there, the man said with authority, in that corner over there. His heavy breathing and booming voice echoed off the bare white walls. 
I'm slipping, the woman said. Just one second, the man said, grunting with effort as he moved to help. The bundle landed on the floor with a loud thud. The apartment shook. The woman shrieked, the man groaned in frustration. These sounds and vibrations echoed for several seconds. It's okay, the man said, unrolling the bundle. I can slide it from here. He unrolled the bundle to reveal a sleek white sleeping mat. He pushed it into the northwest corner of the room. The apartment felt the weight of this mat, though it was small compared to the furniture that had previously occupied this apartment. The couple removed their boots and jackets and sat upon the mattress, the woman's head against her partner's shoulder. They sat in silence, punctuated by occasional drifts into conversation. Their voices were tired and heavy. Through this fog of conversation, the apartment heard their names, Rick and Cora. Cora rifled through one of the bags and produced a smaller bag. She then began to remove items from the bag, taking them with her into the bathroom. The shower gurgled to life, with a hesitation only present after many months of disuse. Rick called someone on his cell phone. He then removed a large pipe from his bag and cracked open a window. He carefully dropped some marijuana into his pipe and smoked it with gravity. He blew the smoke out of the window. The apartment building sighed. Cora turned the shower off and busied herself in the bathroom. Rick sat on the bed, playing music from his phone. There was a knock on the door. He answered it, spoke to the man on the other side, and came back into the apartment with a large pizza. He placed it on the kitchen counter. Cora exited the bathroom in a robe. Her thick socks muted her footsteps on the hardwood floor. Pizza's here, Rick said. Cora looked around the apartment, empty no longer, and went into the kitchen. Rick awoke at two in the morning and used the bathroom. When he returned to bed, Cora was awake. She was looking at her phone, scrolling with her index finger. The screen lit up her face and the rest of the room in a harsh white glow. Can't sleep? Rick asked. Cora did not turn her attention away from her phone. Yeah. Do you want to have sex? Rick asked. Cora said nothing. Rick stared back for a few minutes, his breathing deep and even. He then turned over and fell back asleep, his back to Cora. The first thing they bought was a dresser. Rick and another man brought the bulky mahogany piece in through the front door. They were careful, but the doorframe did not escape unfazed. The apartment did not protest as the heavy dresser was dragged across the hardwood floor and pushed into the large, deep closet. There, said the other man. First piece of furniture. You two are off to a great start. Rick did not respond, unsure if the man was making fun of him. The apartment felt the weight of the dresser and approved of its placement. Over the course of the next few weeks, the studio apartment began to fill up with furniture. The sleeping pad was replaced with a bed frame and queen-sized mattress. The dresser and closet were filled with clothing. A couch, two chairs, and a coffee table were anchored in one corner of the apartment with a large white rug. A large credenza with a TV and record player were strategically placed on one wall. A desk was added as well as a small bookshelf. The kitchen was filled with food, utensils, and appliances. The apartment felt the weight of each item, felt its presence and its shape. It was good to have furniture again. It was also good to have people again. But the apartment felt something odd. It was not sure, but it had a feeling that something was not quite right. It had its answer soon.
Rick and Cora had a housewarming party about one month after moving in. The apartment approved. Housewarming parties were its favorite kind of parties after children's birthdays. Hours before the first guests arrived, Rick and Cora had an argument. This wasn't the first argument the apartment had witnessed between the two, but the frequency of these arguments was concerning. Rick was sitting by the open window, smoking marijuana. A draft kept pushing the smoke back in his face and into the apartment. Would you stop doing that for just one second? Cora asked. You're stinking up the place. Calm down, Rick said, waving his hand ineffectually. The smell never lingers. Yeah, but what if the neighbors smell it? You know we're not allowed to smoke in here. Rick waved his hand again, only this time it was to dismiss Cora. It's fine. No one can smell it, and even if they can, they won't say shit. Everyone will just keep to themselves. You don't know that, Cora said, retrieving an aerosol can of air freshener and spraying it liberally in Rick's direction. Would you cut that out, Rick said. I will if you smoke on the back steps. Rick heaved a frustrated sigh. It's too windy to smoke out there. I can't light the damn bowl. Cora went to the window and closed it. Then don't smoke right now. I need your help anyways. There are still dishes on the drying rack that need to be put away. And can you please change into a nicer shirt? Rick rolled his eyes and went to complete his tasks. The apartment did what it could to cleanse the air. It did not like marijuana smoke choking its interior, but it supposed it couldn't dictate the habits of its tenants. The small studio apartment was soon filled with about a half-dozen people milling about. Most sat on the couch, but some sat on the bed, while others wandered into the kitchen in search of food and beer. The apartment accepted a few gracious gifts from these guests, including a houseplant and a massive book of architectural photographs. Cora spent most of her time talking with the man who had helped Rick with the dresser several weeks ago. Rick spent most of his time blowing smoke out of the window and loudly discussing how noisy the neighborhood was. As he spoke, the train grinded along its tracks nearby, causing the windows to rattle in their frames and the party guests to all wince simultaneously. "'Would you close that fucking window?' Cora called from across the room. Rick glared openly at his girlfriend before slamming the window shut. The room was silent. The record on the turntable had been in the middle of a song, but the apartment created a minor glitch in the electrical outlet, causing the record player to stop. It wanted silence. It wanted everybody to stare at Rick. The apartment did not like Rick. After a beat, one of the party guests cracked open another beer and took a loud sip. He belched and said, What happened to the music? This broke the tension, and Cora stood up to fix the record player. Two people on the couch gave each other a quick look before hiding their expressions behind their drinks. The belcher helped Cora with the record player. The man Cora had been talking to busied himself on his phone. The apartment held its breath, waiting to see if Rick would say or do anything. The record player burst to life. The pounding drums and screeching guitar of the black keys poured out of the speakers once more. Everyone resumed their conversations, as if nothing had happened. Later that night, Rick and Cora were sitting up in bed, each scrolling through their phones in the dark. Their faces were lit by their screens, shadows occasionally dancing off their features. Cora put in her headphones and tilted her screen. Rick quickly glanced in her direction, but he couldn't make out what she was watching. He pointedly put his phone down and stared into the darkness.
It took over five minutes before Cora finished her video and noticed Rick's expression. What's wrong, Rick? Cora asked, pulling her headphones from her ears. Rick said nothing, his arms now crossed over his chest. What's wrong? she asked again, annoyed. Nothing, Rick said. His voice was so quiet, Cora swiped at her ears to make sure she still didn't have her headphones in. Cora was about to say something snarky when Rick spoke up. What were you and Hal talking about all night? So, the apartment now had a name for the man who had helped Rick with the dresser. What do you mean? You know what I mean, he said. You two were speaking in hushed voices like you had some secret. Cora said nothing. She knew what Rick was driving at. It was nothing, she said. We were just talking about college. I don't believe you, Rick said. What do you think we were talking about? Cora said, her voice rising. Want to take a guess? Do you think we were whispering sweet nothings to each other? Rick slapped her. It was quick and sharp. The sound of open palm against cheek was like a gunshot in the apartment. In the silence that followed, the apartment groaned and leaned on its foundation, a witness to the sudden violence. Cora began to shake and sob, her back to Rick and her hand on her face. Rick was shaking as well, though it was from anger rather than fear. This is nothing like last time, Cora said quietly. That was a mistake, and I already promised it would never happen again. Rick leaned in. You have to be careful, he said. It's hard for me to know what you're doing when you talk to other people. So I shouldn't talk to anybody? Yeah, that's reasonable. Just don't talk to Hal anymore, Rick said. That's all I ask. Rick rose from the bed and started dressing. He put his shoes on and wrapped a light jacket around his shoulders. Where are you going? Cora asked. Out, Rick said, to get drunk. With that, he slammed the door. The apartment stilled the rattling immediately. Cora sat in bed for a while. She couldn't understand Rick's behavior. This move was supposed to be good for them. They were supposed to have left her mistake their mistakes, behind. But it seemed like they had brought them along. She stood up and checked her phone, texting her mother the latest incident of Rick's violence. Her phone rang almost immediately after she hit send. Her mother always did this. She always wanted to talk things out, which to Cora's mother meant talking fast in one breath and not letting anyone else get a word in. Cora ignored the call and sent another message. She placed her phone down and went to the kitchen for a beer. She leaned against the counter and drank it, thinking about nothing. The pain in her cheek was already fading. Part of her wished it would remain a reminder of what she'd just gone through. If the pain remained, Rick couldn't deny hitting her. This wasn't the first time he'd struck her. After she'd admitted to having a one-night stand with her old co-worker, Rick had flipped out. She could swear she was still tender in her ribcage from that day. She finished her first beer and opened another one. As she sipped, a curious feeling came over her. She wasn't sure, but she could swear that the apartment got warmer. She walked to the middle of the apartment and felt a noticeable difference in temperature. She stood there for five seconds before feeling that same warmth envelop her again. This time she gasped. It was as if someone had placed a warm blanket around her shoulders. She hugged herself and went to the couch. 
This time, the warmth followed her there. Her mind immediately drifted to ghosts. It was silly, but she thought of cold spots in houses, and then ectoplasm. She laughed. Sure, a ghost that makes warm spots instead of cold spots. How rational. Her attempts to laugh it off failed. Not only was she warm, but she suddenly felt safe. She felt like she could be airdropped into the Vietnamese jungle with just a toothpick and face down a tiger with ease. With this feeling coursing through her veins, she fell asleep, her empty beer bottle rolling onto the floor. Everything happened at once. The train rattled on its rusted tracks, shaking the apartment building like an earthquake. At the same time, the front door burst open so violently that it swung into the wall. Cora sprang awake, disoriented and half-conscious. She looked towards the doorway and saw a large silhouette blocking the light from the hallway. What? she said. The massive form thundered forward unsteadily. Its breathing was ragged and its shoulders hunched. It took entirely too long for Cora to realize it was Rick. Cora sprang to her feet, making sure to grab the empty beer bottle from the floor. She held it by its neck and raised it like a weapon as Rick approached. You bitch, Rick said, his words slurred. You bitch, he said again, his voice more sure and steady this time. He lunged for her. She swung the bottle with all her might, but never made contact. Rick grabbed her forearm and twisted. Cora screamed, dropping the bottle onto the floor with a clatter. She began struggling with her boyfriend, his larger frame and strength overwhelming her. They swung around the apartment in a strange dance, Rick's drunkenness severely impairing his ability to do severe damage. The door slammed shut, and Cora had a brief moment of confusion. Who had shut the door? The apartment's windows began to rattle in their frames, the sound almost as deafening as the passing train. But there was no passing train. What was shaking the windows? Their struggle continued. Around the apartment they went, crashing into the small round dining table, overturning the large parted plant near the front door, tussling the sheets off the bed. Books flew off shelves, the curtains billowed in a fantastic wind, the bathroom door swung open and shut as if on a motor. Cora noticed none of these things as she grappled with Rick. His stubbornness threatened to overwhelm her at every turn, but he always tripped up somewhere. He lost his balance multiple times and stumbled as if struck. He must be drunker than he looks, Cora thought. The apartment continued to rattle in its foundation, attempting to subdue the violence in its guts. Why are you hurting me? Cora screamed. Why are you hurting me? Rick said through gritted teeth. The apartment had had enough. It was time to end this. With a final thrust, the apartment leaned and swayed and pushed, causing the credenza with the record player to slide along the floor. Cora was flung out of the way with the help of a chair that struck her waist. The credenza's movement on the floor was swift. It struck Rick in the midsection, pushing him with such force that he stumbled backwards. He didn't have time to scream before he crashed through the window and down to the pavement below. Cora did scream, loud enough to miss the distinct thud of flesh and bone on concrete. The silence that followed was marred only by the sound of chilly wind whistling through the broken window. Cora hugged herself against the chill, but found that she didn't need to. She was enveloped by the same warmth she had felt earlier that evening, the warmth like a protective blanket over her shoulders. She surveyed the apartment. Books, furniture, and sheets lay in disarray. 
It looked like a hurricane, localized only to this tiny apartment, had traveled through the room. She sighed before hunting for her phone to call the police and an ambulance. The next few hours were a blur of police, paramedics, and concerned neighbors. The apartment was technically an active crime scene, so the mess remained for several days before the building manager was allowed to clean it up. The window was replaced. The blood was washed from the asphalt below. Cora emptied the apartment with the help of her friend Howe and moved back in with her parents to heal from her ordeal. The apartment observed all of these events in silence, occasionally enveloping its occupant with a warm embrace. Though it had been only a month, the apartment was glad to be empty again. It hoped it would remain empty for a while, but it couldn't be sure. For now, the apartment enjoyed its expanse. It enjoyed the newly buffed floors, it enjoyed the new window, and it enjoyed the peace and serenity of silence. The apartment did like people, but they did not remain for very long. The apartment sighed, hoping the next tenants would be better. That was T.F. Ahmad's The Apartment, as read by Colin Duncan. Colin Duncan is a well-spoken man of strangely indeterminate age. He often uses archaic words and speaks of centuries past as if he had personally witnessed them. But that would be impossible. These days, he lives in the Pacific Northwest, where he sells sustainable clothing by day and teaches martial arts by night. Thank you, Colin. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Lessel Baxter, Paul Belcher, Amanda Carrillo, Amanda Gottfried, and Orion D. Hegra, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Podchaser, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating or review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs, so you can show those around you just how twisted you truly are. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, Crystal Hammond, Spencer Desparty, and myself, 
Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we seek retribution for ancient evils with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 